This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Today, we will wrap up our discussion of George Orwell's timeless warning against totalitarianism through the novella Animal Farm. In week one, we met Orwell and looked at his life and how his ideas were formulated over a lifetime, lived split between the continent of Europe and the countries of India and Burma. We explored how his understanding the haves versus the have-nots came not through a study of theory only, but also through a life lived both as a have and as a have-not, and a sympathy for those who were born through no fault of their own in a world lacking what today we would call privilege. That's right. In the second episode, we met the characters of the Manor Farm. We talked about who they were on the farm and who they represented in real life. If we look at this book as a direct allegory to the country of Russia as it was transformed into the USSR at the beginning of the 20th century. In episode two, we delved into quite a bit of Russian history and discussed the Russian Revolution, Stalin, Trotsky, or Napoleon and Snowball, to use animal farm words. And last week, we expanded our discussion into a much larger discussion as we broadened our understanding of Orwell's novel to be not just about the Soviet Union. We look specifically at the rise of the power of, of any tyrant. We analyzed specifically how Napoleon rose to power on Animal Farm. We highlighted the most obvious types of propaganda used on Animal Farm and how Squealer, the propaganda pig, which is a name you never want to be given, was able to revise history, edit circumstances, intimidate, and ultimately flat-out lie about reality, leaving the entire farm in a state of cognitive dissonance. 
Yes, and today we're going to extend this thematic application one step further. Beyond just an exposure of propaganda techniques, what is Orwell saying about human nature and who's responsible for the rise of tyranny? And I do want to define tyranny because tyranny isn't just governments. It's cruel, unreasonable, or arbitrary use of power or control, and that can happen anywhere. We're going to do this by breaking down the last three chapters of the book, and when we do that, we'll enter into this discussion about how to interpret the entire book, especially after you get to the very last page and kind of look back. However, before we do that, I do want to talk about what's going on next week because I'm kind of excited about it. And I also want to talk about the song we're playing at the beginning of the Animal Farm podcast series. Yes, I think we should talk about that song uh, because you absolutely insisted we play it. So what is the name of this song and what is it about? Okay, it's the song's name is Katusha and it's really a song that takes me back to my Kazakhstan experience. When I was there, it was played everywhere. We learned it in school, although I'm embarrassed to say that's all left my brain and I would be I would be embarrassed to try to sing it. The song is actually a World War II patriotic song written in 1938 and was used to inspire people to serve and defend the homeland. I love it because it's fun and it's a catchy melody and it's kind of romantic. It's about a girl named Katusha standing, singing, and watching her true love go to war. The idea is that the soldier will protect the motherland and when he does, he'll remember that he's protecting the girl and she'll be waiting for him. So, if you want to put it in Animal Farm terms, it's about big, brave boxers swearing to take care of Clover and all the other animals on the farm. Uh, well, <laughs> can you sing it? Oh, no. We've clearly established this is not a singing <laughs> podcast. Yes, we have. Especially not in Russian. But that brings me to next week, because next week I had originally thought, and I think I may have even said that we were going to talk about Orwell's other short works. He has a lot of awesome essays and short stories but i've had a change of mind instead what i want to do is feature one of the great russian writers of short fiction and that's anton chekhov i feel like orwell is really hard on russia and so it's easy to think of russia as a culture as being totally defined by communism and that is a mistake communism existed in russia for just a period of time But their history and culture is very, very rich, and it's very deep. The literary tradition alone is comprised of many men, and I hate to admit they mostly are men, but their brilliance and their insight and their poetic expression and their their philosophy has enlightened and really confused people of all ages for a long time. Uh, But Chekhov, of all the Russian writers, is actually quite manageable and he's easier to read and quite relatable. So next week, I want to take a nod to the great Russian writers with one of the fathers of the short story genre and to talk a little bit of, and read a little bit of Anton Chekhov. Look at a couple of his stories just for funsies and briefly talk about a few things in general that a person should keep in mind, not just when reading Anton Chekhov's short story, but any short story of any collection. So... Hopefully that sounds interesting. 
Well, that does. And I must admit, I mean, I've heard a lot about great Russian writers like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, Pushkin, Solzhenitsyn, and so forth. But beyond just a name, I don't know that I know a whole lot about the body of work they represent. Okay. All right. So let's get back to the farm. Indeed. Back to the farm because it's a gloomy day on the farm. And every day from here on out, I'm sorry to say, forever and ever will be quite gloomy, although they don't quite know it yet. I mentioned in the last episode that there were two ways of looking at this book, From if you're going to think of it in terms of plot and character. The first way is to think about this book as being about Napoleon as the key character and his rise to power. Last week, we took that approach We looked at his takeover of the farm, his expulsion of Snowball as really being the climax and the subsequent use of dog squealer and propaganda in general, because that's when he takes a step from which he can't come back. We addressed the ways that he was able to take over the farm and really subjugate all the animals, and he did. And although this is one way to look at it, and it's interesting to look at it in this way, and we did last week. Uh, honestly, I don't know that it's the best way to look at Animal Farm, at least thematically. And let me tell you why. You see, when we look at this book as being about Napoleon, we're giving Napoleon a lot of power to take over the world. And through this lens, we're Boxer, and we are Boxer, by the way. Uh, but if we look at the in this lens, we're left as Boxer and being dumb and helpless. And all we can really do is watch somebody wreck our lives. However, if that were the case in real life, if people really were as dumb and helpless and nothing but victims, why would you bother writing the book at all? There's nothing to be done. But we know from our inspiration from Frederick Douglass, uh, that if you're going to be a slave, you're better off being dumb and brute. But that's not Orwell's position, and it's not his reason for writing the book. He's not trying to tell us that the sum of human experience is to be a dumb brute subjected to be ruled by a smarter pig-like overpowering tyrant, and that just is nothing you can do about it. This book is a warning, and the implied question in the book is how does Napoleon get to be Napoleon, or how can we not let Napoleon get to be Napoleon? If this book is about the common man, and perhaps this book is about the common man, in Boxer, we're Boxer. We're the average people. We have power. If we can exert it, how can we do so to keep Napoleon or all the pigs of the world, of which there are many in all kinds of situations, at bay? In a moral sense, perhaps, it's better. And we must look at the book from Boxer's perspective, making him the protagonist. Because in this moral sense, this book is not just about politics. It's bigger than the tyranny of politics. Uh, There are many dominions where tyrants are vying for larger and larger dominions. That is right. And for the most part, the post-World War II dynamics of world power is quickly fleeting. Our world is not a Cold War world with two superpowers like it was for most of the 20th century. 
but human nature is still the same. Um, there will always be, no matter what the political structure, a power game to be played between humans where one human or group of humans views themselves as better for whatever reason, be it because of birth, location, uh, money, physical appearance, um, intelligence, historical legacy, musical talent, athletic prowess, or, or even acting ability. And that's just the larger community sense. These power struggles exist at the family level or between a community as small as two people. The universality of boxer suggests that anyone who's willing to give someone else unquestioned loyalty and blind service will be, by very definition, exploited to the degree they allow this to occur. Ugh. So what are you saying? Is there a sense that what happened on Animal Farm uh, is Boxer's fault? No, uh, I'm not saying it's his fault because one person's treachery is not another person's fault. But I am saying Boxer could and should have at least tried to stop the tyranny before it got to the point where he could no longer save himself. And I want to point out, this is where we tied into cognitive dissonance from the last time. When you're experiencing cognitive dissonance, um, you're left with a choice. I'm wrong. I must now take responsibility for being wrong. Or we can keep going the way things have gone. Well, with that in mind, let's open the book up to chapter 8. If you recall, by the end of chapter 7, the animals are starving The pigs are taking the eggs from the chickens and selling them to the outside world. Napoleon has given himself a medal for something he has not done but was pretending to have done. But worst of all, they're murdering animals on the farm who disagreed with the way things are being done. Yes, and over the course of time, slowly but surely, all of the commandments were being altered and extended. The Sixth Commandment, which had originally read that no animal shall kill any other animal had been changed to no animal shall kill any other animal without cause. And what Orwell is careful to point out is that, and I quote, though no one cared to mention it in the hearing of the pigs or the dogs, it was felt that the killings which had taken place did not square with this. Well, we're going to see the range of animals present on the farm. And in some sense, this expresses the range of different people and potential responses to tyranny in real life. And, of course, you saw it kind of in the quote, the way that he says it. uh, No one cared to mention in the hearings of the pigs or dogs. It was felt. So by who was it felt? Well, we're fixing to see by who it was felt because we're going to see the variety uh, of different people represented through these animals. We've mentioned Boxer before, and in this case, Boxer's really stupid. He's uneducated. He's a great guy. He's totally lovable. He's a hard worker. He's exactly what a tyrant wants. He's perfect. He's loyal. He's unquestioning. He's hardworking. He knows his place, and he stays in it. He's 100% controllable. Then you get Clover, who's really not a whole lot better. Clover asks for clarification from time to time. If you remember, she can memorize some of the letters of the alphabet more than Boxer, but 
She does not verbally challenge anything. She just accepts what she's being told. She wants to support Boxer. The relationships are important. And I do want to point out that this is not a book about gender. So don't read that into it, even though I know sometimes with our modern gender politics, we can get a little bit sidetracked with that. But that is not, there isn't anything to do with gender in this book. Clover does not have Napoleon right as a mantra. So that's the distinction. She's not that in, but there is submission. This takes us to Benjamin because at one point you're going to see she asked Benjamin to read what's on the barn and he just flat out refuses. And of course, we know Orwell is talking about a large portion of the Russian intelligentsia, but in a broader sense, this represents people who can see what's going on and just don't get involved. Orwell says, quote, he refused to meddle in such matters. He won't even discuss it. Gary, what can you tell us about that? What are your thoughts? Well, that, I mean, this is obviously one way to bring on a tyrant, that's for sure. Just claim to be the sort of person that doesn't get involved. And uh, lots of us like to fall in this category because perhaps it feels safe to say, I'm not a political person. I don't invite controversy. It doesn't really matter. I'm neutral. All these positions are wrapped up into the apathetic Benjamin who concludes his non-involvement argument with this line, you've never seen a dead donkey. (laughs) The kind of cynicism that suggests that everything is just always going to be the same. However magnanimous a view that may seem at first, Orwell seems to suggest that it's faulty, it's lazy, and it's even a dangerous position. And as we're going to see in a minute, there will come a time when even Benjamin cannot take the moral high ground or the road to neutrality anymore. And that brings me to Muriel the goat. I have trouble saying that word. Muriel. (laughs) Muriel. 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 Muriel is is an interesting character to me and and one that I kind of find to be uh, easy to identify with. There's absolutely no doubt that the power of language to distort reality is a key theme in this book. And by chapter eight, this is clearly evident to the reader. The satire by this point, it's been heightened every single chapter. And the dramatic irony, and that's when the reader knows something that the characters don't know, the dramatic irony is flat obvious. But back to Muriel. Muriel can read. She's not stupid like like Boxer who can't get past the letter C or even Clover. Why isn't Muriel catching all of the manipulation by the pigs? It's a question that remains unanswered. Uh, I think it's a great question. Uh, Solomon Ash carried out experiments on uh, conformity and obedience after the publication of this book, not related to it, but as part of the growth of social psychology. And in the Ash experiment, you know, it first passed, it looks like this, the experiment might have been about uh, the power of the situation and people conforming to group pressure. But really, I think a great outcome of that study also was the whole idea that it puts you in a position of disorientation. So tell us what you're talking about for those of us who don't know Solomon Ash. Okay, well, I'll apply it to Muriel. Muriel could read, Muriel could understand what was going on, but she didn't have anybody with her 
to bounce these ideas off of, to give them some kind of depth and sounding. And so what many people do in these situations is like they will say, I believe this to be the truth, but now I'm disoriented and unsure because nobody's supporting me in it. So it's kind of like the idea if everyone says that's a red wall, you can see it's a blue wall, but you're not going to say it's a it's a blue wall because everyone else is calling it red. So you just well, say, "Well, it must be." Right. I must be wrong. And in the Ash experiment, in the in the beginning, people would would stick to their convictions, but then the the larger the numbers got, the more pressure, the more people thought, "Well, maybe I'm not seeing it correctly." And mural is the expression of that. Well, to further. Uh, discuss this, I do want to bring up this issue of tone. Now, the word tone means attitude. We all know this. If your mom says, don't take that tone with me, what she doesn't like is your attitude that you're expressing through your voice. Because when we speak, our, our the up and down in our voice tells how we feel. It gives away our attitude. But writers aren't speaking to us with our ears. They're speaking to us through their words. So it's through their word choice that we can see what their attitude is about everything that's going on, the way that they describe it. So if I call you, oh, you lovely darling, hopefully you can tell that I I like you. Uh, Sometimes, though, what you don't say can convey tone. So if you ask me, should I ask such and such girl out on a date? What do you think of her? And I say, well, uh, she's nice and uh, well-read. That might not be what you want to hear. What I don't say, maybe what is left Hmm. languishing is maybe she's not a good date because most people don't care if you're well-read in a romantic relationship. Maybe they do. Well, the phrase for that is damning with faint praise. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) And sometimes that's saying something in and of itself. In this book, Orwell is really masterful at how he manipulates uh, our attitude towards certain characters over the course of the book. Uh, And Orwell's narrator, I want to point out, comes across, especially at the very beginning, as neutral and very plain spoken from the beginning. Look at the very first sentence of the book and how he begins. Mr. Jones of the Manor Farm had locked the hens up for the night, but was too drunk to remember to shut the potholes. This is very, very straightforward and clear. But look how this compares to the way Squealer talks here in Chapter 8. On Sunday morning, Squealer, and this is what I'm going to quote, holding down a long strip of paper with his trotter would read out to them lists of figures proving that the production of every class of foodstuff has increased by 200%, 300%, or 500%. Then look at the next line. The animals saw no reason to disbelieve him, especially as they could no longer remember clearly what conditions had been like before the rebellion. So we have this, at first pass, neutral tone, but through the irony, we can clearly see that this is a lie, and we're getting angrier and angrier as we read it. And in some sense, this leads us to you know, one of the main ideas of the book, clarity of language and distortion of language is a big deal when you're talking about uh, what uh, is going on. And maybe Orwell, I told you at the beginning that you can't catch his theme on first pass through the first sentence of the book, but maybe you can. 
the distortion of language has shifted people's understanding of their reality. And I want to and I want to talk about the animals because they're four fatal, I think, let me say it this way. The animals have four fatal flaws. That's a lot of alliteration. I know. Four fatal, <laughs> four fatal flaws that Orwell kind of is going to develop. And it's through these flaws that they're going to invite victimization into themselves. And yes, I think that's where... Uh, we as animals, we're the common people. And if we're going to take what he's saying out of the context of the story and apply it to our lives, uh, we are and can be responsible for propping up tyrannies and inviting victimization upon ourselves by doing these four things that we see the animals doing on the farm. And these lessons, these four ideas are not just applicable to government. They're applicable to relationships and communities. Exactly. And so Orwell, through this kind of neutral narrator, is going to unfold these behaviors that these animals are doing in this neutral way. But by the end of it, you are so angry at the animals and you're angry at the tyrants and he's hopefully trying to get you to flip that and be angry at yourself or at least look at yourself to see if you are indeed allowing things to happen that you're not aware of. And this is the genius of Orwell. Orwell publishes the book in 1943. He's many, many years ahead of the development of the field of social psychology where they will actually come up with uh, terms to define these things that he's clearly showing us in the story. Because he's saying, you're dumb. You're not seeing this. Let me lay it out. So what are the first, the four things? First of all, point number one, and this is a big one. We allow ourselves to be linguistically and or cognitively cognitively stupid in other words our thinking and our language we can be stupid either by our inability to learn we can't learn or we don't learn a laziness to think through things for ourselves or maybe we're just being too distracted to pay attention i'm not sure which of those is worse but uh every reader at this point is angry and when they listen to how Orwell phrases things like no animal shall kill any other animal without cause somehow or other the last two words this is what he says somehow or other the last two words had slipped out of the animal's memory the reader is like how does that happen it's a big deal so number one Language. We can allow ourselves to be linguistically and cognitively stupid for any variety of reasons. But if you allow yourself to, no animal shall kill any other animal without cause, and you don't notice that something has been switched, you're dumb. Secondly, the animals are extremely gullible in accepting what they are told at face value in spite of what they see. From the very beginning of the book, the pigs are going to use circumlocution. That means kind of like speaking in circles. 
unintelligible jargon, numbers, the manipulation of numbers, the manipulation and distortion of phrases to not only confuse the animals, but to literally to use a phrase that animal that Orwell uses in the book when he says this about Squealer. He was a brilliant talker. And what is a brilliant talker? He could turn black into white. He can make something the polar opposite of what it actually was uh, through manipulation of language and through your ability or for his ability to make you believe him. The ultimate gaslighting. And third, there is this historical amnesia that's going on. Uh, the animals have difficulty remembering. And since they are told different versions of reality all the time, over time, what they are told has happened becomes truth. And so by chapter eight, we are told that it had become common to give Napoleon the credit for every successful achievement and every stroke of good fortune. You would often hear one hen remark to another, under the guidance of our leader, Comrade Napoleon, I have laid five eggs in six days. Uh, And it's how we culminate in chapter eight, where Napoleon is given credit for happiness they don't actually experience, and food they don't literally have. Any reader at this point is outraged as Orwell cleverly manipulates the tone of the book to make us hate Napoleon. And lastly, what some have termed uh, the politics of sacrifice. And it's this idea that you are too invested to feel like you can get out, and so you just keep investing more and more. This idea of I will work harder. Think of it as stock investing or gambling. You buy $1,000 worth of stock at $100 a share. The stock goes down to $2 a share. And you don't want to say that you're so stupid you lost all that money. So what do you do? You buy another $1,000 at $2. And then you just let the stock go completely to zero. And you don't understand what happened. The idea is you don't want to face the reality that you got taken. So you just invest more and more in thinking that at some point, things are going to change. We see Boxer doing this and we see Napoleon encouraging it. The word sacrifice is used over and over and over again in this book. And the animals are asked to get more deeply invested into the quote, what they call success of Animal Farm or the success of the windmill. But they're not investing in themselves at all. They're being used and they're being abused by somebody else. There will never be any return on this sacrifice or on this investment. And the more you give, the less likely you want to admit that. There's never going to be a retirement. There's never going to be any rest. And ultimately, when Boxer falls, instead of taking him to the doctor, Squealer calls the glue maker. By this point in the story, we really do feel sad for the animals. One thing I wanted to interject here that I read in an article about Orwell himself And that I pointed out in a previous episode is Orwell really is an animal lover and a farmer. Uh, And his expression of the mistreatment of animals is heartfelt. I think it really comes across here. He feels compassion for all animals. 
And he uses this to make us feel compassion for these animals, too. They are starving, and the one responsible for them is cruel. I agree. We feel bad for all the animals, from the big horses who are overworking down to the hens who are literally giving away their babies. And these same hens who are giving away their children at the same time give Napoleon credit for laying eggs. And these same hens who give away their children who credit Napoleon at some point in the summer, and this is a quote in the book, it says, in the middle of the summer, the animals were alarmed to hear that three hens had come forward and confessed that inspired by Snowball, they had, well, they were involved in a plot to murder Napoleon and they were executed immediately. Nobody cares about the eggs. Nobody cares about the chickens. The pigs don't care about anyone and the chickens disappear persona non grata like so many people did under the stalin regime and so that brings us to another point about totalitarian rulers that i think we see orwell making they tend to be extremely paranoid as well as egomaniacal people they know they are treacherous and they appear to be paranoid their treachery will come back to haunt them but at the same time, they insist on elaborate praise at all times. Napoleon has basically vanished from public view by this point in the book. He lives separately from the other pigs. He has four dogs that guard even his bed at night and a pig named Pink Eye to taste his food to, so that he doesn't get poisoned. And he eats out of the Crown Derby. He has the poem on the barn, his picture painted up the side of the barn. He has the gun fired on his birthday. He requires that everyone call him by these absurd titles like protector of the sheepfold. And he even names the windmill after himself. And thus begins what Khrushchev is titled the cult of personality. Now, Khrushchev comes to power after the death of Stalin in the Soviet Union, and he will renounce Stalin's purges and executions. And he's actually the one that coins the phrase cult of personality. And the cult of personality involves making the authoritarian omnipresent and omnipowerful in the mind of the subjects. He's all wise, he's all compassionate. The, the same technique has been used in China and North Korea. And so other Khrushchev places. thought that Stalin had invoked the cult of personality, or was he just talking in general terms? Khrushchev titled what Stalin did the cult of personality. He has a, Stalin had his propaganda ministry that did nothing but these exact kind of things that Squealer did. And so Khrushchev denounces him publicly when he takes over power in the Soviet Union. Well, Comrade Napoleon's poem, as composed by Minimus, reads this, Friend of fatherness, fountain of happiness, Lord of the swill bucket, oh, how my soul is on fire when I gaze at the calm and commanding eye like the sun in the sky, Comrade Napoleon. <laughs> yes, you know, one of the interesting uh, expressions of the cult of personality in a regime is that they go to great lengths to have their portraits all over public display, whether it's on the side of buildings, whether it's in statues. They, you can't get away from the constant presence of the dictator's face. That always happens. Which brings me back to my initial point that I was making about manipulation of language beyond just, you know, you talk about portraits, but the language is crazy. Chapter 8 is dark. The animals are starving. The windmill gets blown up. 
Napoleon is going to get ripped off by Frederick, which, by the way, there's a reference to the Holocaust in this chapter if you look at what he says about Frederick. But anyway, uh, Frederick rips him off with banknotes that have been forged. But by the end of it, Squealer has claimed it's a victory. But it's so bad that even Boxer at one point says, what victory? Doesn't matter. At the end, there's a parade. They've renamed the battle, given Napoleon a medal, and at the end, all the pigs are drunk off of whiskey, and Squealer has fallen off a ladder while changing the commandment, which we know he's fallen off a ladder, and we know now that the new commandment reads, no animal shall drink alcohol to excess. And Muriel, although she can read the new commandment, seems to not have the presence of mind to question its veracity or even wonder why there's a fallen pig by a ladder right under where the new one is now written. Well, this is another example of Orwell's insight and genius. What happens is Napoleon creates, by his own foolishness, an economic crisis. And so what's the best thing to do? Have a war and a parade to distract from the great, huge mess they've made economically. Uh, Super common in totalitarian governments. And that is another part of how tyranny is even created. So by chapter 9, Squealer, according to Orwell, has difficulty in proving to the other animals that they were not in reality short of food, while at the same time finding it necessary to make a readjustment of rations. And notice how Orwell points out to the reader that this term is used instead of a reduction. It's like he wants to make sure Squealer isn't brainwashing the reader as he is brainwashing the animals with his magical use of numbers. Well, magical is the right word uh, because if you it says this, Reading out the figures in a shrill, rapid voice, he proved to them in detail that they had more oats, more hay, more turnips than they had had in Jones's day, and they worked shorter hours, hours, that their drinking water was of better quality, that they lived longer, and that a proportion of their young ones survived infancy, and that they had more straw in their stalls and suffered less from fleas. And it says this, the animals believed every word of it. Truth to tell, Jones and all he stood for had almost faded out of their memories. They knew that life nowadays was harsh and bare, that they were often hungry and often cold, and they were usually working when they were not asleep, but doubtless it had been worse in the old days. They were glad to believe, there it is, they were glad to believe so. Besides, in those days they had been slaves, and now they were free. And that made all the difference, as Squealer did not fail to point out. (laughs) Well, there are other details we could point out also. Napoleon is siring a lot of little piglets. He's holding elections with only himself as a candidate. He declares the farm a republic, just like we had the United Soviet Socialist Republic was a republic. And that idea is very foreign to the American concept of republic. He's revised the story of the Battle of the Cowshed, where now Snowball was leading the human forces, brought back Moses, and he's feeding Moses a gill of beer every day while he spreads stories about Sugar Candy Mountain. But none of that is as bad as what happens to Boxer when he falls and he can't get up. And that's the climax, and that's where the theme culminates in some sense as well. The idea being, 
If you are ignorant, if you are lazy with your language, if you do not guard against gullibility, if you do not guard against the revision of history, then when you fall, you will be taken to the knackers. That's metaphorically, of course. (laughs) And by that point, nobody can help you. Boxer was never seen again. And to make the reader as angry as possible, Napoleon not only sold his body in exchange for whiskey, but the animals were too blind to even see it. And although we shouldn't be surprised, we as readers love Boxer because Orwell makes us love Boxer by how he describes it. There's no one more gentle, no more hardworking. His tone towards Boxer is nothing but endearing. But the non-emotional and detached way that Orwell describes Boxer's death is cold, it's heartless, it's angering. And then Napoleon is going to go around and calling him a friend after his death, claiming to be with him in his last hours, which we all know is a total lie. And then hijacking Boxer's memory with his own line, long live comrade Napoleon. We're, by the end of this chapter, we're not just astonished and betrayed, but the reader is supposed to feel rage. Is that, did you feel that? Yes, <laughs> uh, because by the last chapter, we're, we're living in a cartoon, even by Orwell's fairy tale standards. Apparently, there's a time break between uh, chapter 9 and 10. It just says years passed. That's right. And what Orwell is trying to tell the reader here. You, my friend, if you are gullible, if you let it go on, even Benjamin tried to warn him at the last minute, but he couldn't kick himself out of the knocker's truck. And once you let the pigs in your life like that, years will pass and there's nothing that you can do. You'll be shipped off to become glue. (laughs) By chapter 10, I think Orwell's tone has changed again. There's a comical element in the last chapter that we don't see in the rest of the book. It's ridiculous. At this point, our emotions are exhausted. There's nothing left. They've taken Boxer. We'll accept anything. We're numb. We almost don't feel sorry for the animals. They have the lives that they brought on themselves. If you are that dumb, perhaps you can get what you deserve because the story ends with the pigs wearing clothes ridiculously, walking around on their back feet. And if it wasn't ridiculous enough to see that parade, they're playing cards with other humans and cheating with each other. Well, toasting each other and the the great new friendship and alliances they have. So, of course, there is a bit of literal allegory going on here. Uh, The card game at the novel's end really parallels the Tehran Conference in 1943, where Stalin, Winston Churchill, and Franklin Roosevelt met to discuss the ways to forge a peace after the war, a peace that Orwell mocks by having Napoleon and Pilkington flatter each other and then betray their duplicitous natures by cheating in a card game. Uh, and as a side, I want to say one thing about the, the Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a true believer in the USSR and the Soviet Republic and a decorated World War II hero. But 
By February 1945, three months before the war's end, he was imprisoned and sent to the gulags. Orwell is prophesying about Stalin's horrors, and within less than two years, Solzhenitsyn was living proof that Orwell was right. Well, the most famous line in all of the book is, of course, finally read by Benjamin off the side side of the barn. There's only now at this point one commandment on the barn, and it's this one. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. What is left to say? (laughs) By this point in the book, we all understand exactly what that means. Black has been made to white. White has been made to black, to quote Squealer. The final line of the whole book, the creatures look from the pigs to the men and then back to the pigs. But already it's impossible to say which was which. And that line comes as no surprise to anyone. We leave the book, you're supposed to leave the book somewhat speechless. Further irony on a book about language. But what is there left to say? We all know exactly what Orwell means. Indeed. And that concludes one of the most insightful observations into one of the most tragic phenomena of the 20th century. As we know, Stalin's model has been replicated around the world many times over. If there ever was a book that should be shared, it's this one. Orwell's work will always stand as a warning. So, if you think you know somebody who ne- who's acting like Boxer, send them a, send them a text of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for being with us, and we always like to encourage you to uh, tell your friends about us. And you can keep up to date with everything we're doing at our How to Love Lit Podcast page. You can find out on uh, Facebook page and our Instagram page. Peace out. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.